Welcome to Let's Get Ethical, the podcast of the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto and its Ethics of AI Lab, where conversations about ethics happen. In this episode, we are talking to Mark Kingwell, professor of philosophy and author most recently of Wish I Were Here, Boredom and the Interface, about what he calls the new literacy in an AI world. Welcome, uh, Mark Kingwell, um, who is professor of philosophy at the University of uh, Toronto and um, has been a fantastic contributor to the Center for Ethics in many different roles. So we're very excited to talk to you today about um, about your new uh, column in the Global Mail entitled The New Literacy. So what what's the new literacy? So the new literacy, as I argue in this uh, short piece for the Globe and Mail is really an update on familiar ideas to some about media literacy, which go back to people like Neil Postman and Douglas Rushkoff, but ultimately, I think, in the contemporary idiom to Marshall McLuhan. So in uh, more than 50 years ago, 55 years ago, in understanding media, McLuhan introduced this idea of media as extensions of human consciousness. He said extensions of man, but we don't, we don't use that kind of language these days. Uh, and what he meant by that was that every medium, from smoke signals to Twitter, is a way of extending the mind into the world, and also receiving from the world messages uh, from other minds, or from the environment itself. But media create environments. And that's why famously he said the medium is the message, because it's not just that they are neutral conveyors of discrete messages that might be conveyed just as well by some other medium. Every medium shapes the kind of message that's possible for it to communicate. Uh, And therefore, the medium is the thing that we should pay attention to, because the individual messages are far less important than how the medium is shaped and how it shapes us. The new literacy, therefore, to update McLuhan, is to take that kind of media awareness, which for him was aimed at things like television and print and uh, radio, and now we are in, you know, half a century on, an era of social media, of technological immersion that's even more comprehensive than he could have imagined, and uh, the kinds of things that are now moving so quickly that we have to really re-educate ourselves in a new kind of literacy about the nature of media and technology more generally. And a good example of that would be, say, um, the fact that, that Twitter is something that many people believe would have waned in, in influence if not for President Trump, who uses it as his main medium of communication, his main medium of being president. And therefore, every journalist, every political person, Every person who follows politics has to use that medium, whereas many younger people are switching from Twitter to Instagram, which is much more image-based and less confrontational, uh, not as vitriolic. And in the background is the shadowy influence of the the omnipresent corporation we call Facebook. So uh, that's you know a snapshot of the contemporary landscape. But these things move very very quickly now, and that's part of the new literacy. Yeah, so I'm um, curious about the connection between McLuhan and, and Facebook and social media. Um, 
do you think it's uh, it's an extension of uh, McLuhan, or do you think um, McLuhan needs to be kind of updated for for the new literacy age? In a way, it's both. I, I I argue in this short piece, and I think it's a valid position that could be expanded. That his insights, basic ones about media and how they function, are still valid. They're, they were prescient in many ways, but we do have to update because you have to start thinking about media that are not broadcast media, uh, like television or radio or print. You know, I mean, those are, those are massively scalable forms of media. If I print a newspaper article like this one is, uh, it'll be printed, um, whatever it is, whatever the circulation of the Globe and Mail is. I'm, I'm not going to guess at the number. It's probably much smaller than I think it is. Well, it's uh, better than McLuhan's time. Right, probably. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it will be online. But uh, the same article is just reproduced over and over and over again. So that's a, that's a broadcast medium. And of course, television and radio likewise. But uh, this, what we're doing now, podcasting, is not really a broadcast medium because people have to tune it in directly and we deliver it each time. And likewise, even more so, things like Twitter or Facebook where the single message, it might be retweeted, but it's not really being broadcast in the same sense where you have a central control and then you, you send it out to the whole world. Uh, so that changed the landscape because you can, you can use uh, narrowcast media in specific ways, especially force multiplier ways uh, that you couldn't use broadcast media. And likewise, you know, many people think the advantage of narrowcast media is that they are not gated the same way that broadcast media are and certainly were. That is to say, you know, if I want to publish an article about something that means something to me, if I couldn't get the New York Times to take it, well, then I might not be able to publish it at all, or I'd be reduced drastically to my community newspaper or something like that. Now, if I have uh, a website or a podcast, I can narrowcast it to as many people who are interested. So the gate is, is changed. And uh, I think that's really interesting because uh, it really alters the, the media landscape in ways that I think we're still trying to catch up and understand exactly you know, how, how that really functions and what it means. Especially for me, what it means for social and political discourse. But we probably will get into that even more. Well, because it sounds pretty good. I mean, usually the idea of removing gates is, you know, it's attractive uh, in a democracy. And um, it also raises questions about what journalists are supposed to be doing, um, whether they you know, do a good job uh, being gatekeepers or whether maybe they, they shouldn't be gatekeepers, uh, whether they should think about ethics. I remember there was a time when, when people thought about journalistic ethics, um, maybe a couple years ago, but people have kind of stopped thinking about this, uh, this so much. It's more about disseminating lies and, and um, confusing people. Well, the lines have certainly blurred because uh, I think there's still a notion of professional ethics that attaches to uh, the practice of journalism. But it is much, much uh, more uh, indiscriminate or more vague than, say, the professional ethics for doctors or lawyers. Well, I was afraid you were going to say lawyers. Yeah, yeah lawyers. <laughs> yeah, lawyers have professional associations that maintain <laughs> standards of ethics. Uh, whether that works out in practice is a different thing, but there, there are codes mm. of ethics. Yeah. Whereas in journalism, you know, it's, it's a profession, uh, it's a craft, uh, but there's no central body that controls the standards. Uh, and that's even more true now than it was in McLuhan's time or even 10 years ago. 
So uh, the lines are blurry. And furthermore, I guess, the, um, even, even the journalists who were attached to what we would call the mainstream media, or the lamestream media, to quote Sarah Palin, <laughs> uh, are, are blurring their own lines. So they're on Twitter almost as much as they're writing in newspapers. They're going on television or radio programs. They're multi-platform figures. They might even be pundits on you know, CNN or some other uh, old-fashioned broadcast medium. So they're doing all of these things at once. And the good ones are, are good at all of that. But once those lines become that blurry, then uh, really there are no standards of, of behavior except the ones that you embody yourself by choice. And hence, I think, one, it's, it's one of the factors, only one, but you mentioned misinformation and lies and, and so on. Uh, people have lost trust in the, the very idea of, of journalistic integrity because they look at all these different sources and they don't really know how valid they are, how accurate. And so the next step on is the, the bubble effect, right? The, you live inside a certain media bubble of your own choice, usually one that reflects from the inside of the bubble back to you the things you want to hear. And then the next step from that is uh, anybody who's in a different bubble is a hostile alien. And that's kind of the situation we're in politically right now, where some people watch CNN only, some people watch Fox News only, MSNBC only, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, none of them is authoritative to the, the demos. Right? There is no demos uh, in the old, old sense. And, and do you think that's necessarily a, a bad thing? I mean, I, I sometimes wonder about these of the golden age of uh, journalism when there was, um, you know, usually this kind of older white guy kind of dispensing the news authoritatively. And, um, but I, I don't personally remember kind of the time when I thought of journalists as having, you know, lots of integrity. Maybe that's, you know, a personal shortcoming of mine. But, <laughs> but I, um, I, I think there's, you know, there, there's something to be said for for not assuming somebody has this integrity and then and then giving this person the authority to kind of announce announce the news. Um, so I'm 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 excited in some ways about uh, the changes in, in the media landscape, um, but I, I understand that also there you know there are obviously problems. Um, but I'm not sure the the kind of the loss of the trust in in the uh, journalism's integrity is necessarily a bad thing. Itself. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think by itself it's a bad thing. And it's true that when you look back on the history, even of the last few decades of, let's just stick with, say, uh, television newscasts, uh, Peter Jennings, Dan Rather, uh, you know, these, um, these go going further back, Walter Cronkite, you know, people invested these, these middle to late middle-aged white guys <laughs> with an inordinate amount of authority. Yeah. Uh, Peter Jennings, was he had he had been a very good reporter. He did some great reporting in Vietnam, uh, but by the time he was he was reading the news on I think it was ABC, uh, most people were impressed by his his uh, handsome features and his collection of neckties, mm. uh, and and the the voice you know the voice that delivers the news in that authoritative manner. So yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, theoretically, there should be a kind of democratic flowering that comes out of this application of skepticism rather than mistrust. Yeah. But I think what's happened, unfortunately, 
just looking around now in 2019, um, is it, it hasn't worked out that way. Uh, it's, it's actually become much more fractious and less democratic and more conflict-driven. So if the old model was a bit of a myth, the new model is uh, you know, what happens when you smash all the myths. And it's, it's almost uh, media anarchy or political anarchy. I mean, it's not technically anarchy yet in, in most Western nations. But when you look at the kind of conflicts that happen, the rise of, of right-wing populism, for example, uh, the, the anti-immigration sentiments that have swept across Europe and, uh, and North America, uh, these are, I think, directly linked to this shift in the, in the media landscape, and they are helped along. And this, again, is a McLuhanite kind of point, that mm. uh, things in, in the political world don't happen just because of the way people think. They happen because of the way people communicate or fail to communicate to each other. And that's where media become politically significant. And uh, at the moment, you know, I, I'm not encouraged. I think there, is, there was, I mentioned Facebook. Uh, Facebook, uh, and especially Mark Zuckerberg, has, has um, championed this notion of freedom of speech and increased democracy and, you know, de decentralization of voice and power. But in fact, it's a massive corporation that's driven by profit. Uh, it's cozy with uh, very right-wing uh, interests, Republican interests. Uh, it has uh, squashed uh, regulation that would have constrained its influence and its profit. Uh, so you can't call that democratic, even though the, the top-line, uh, you know, rosy language is, oh no, you know, this makes everybody more equal and more free to express. Well, that's just an illusion. And I think that's part of the, the, the landscape too, that people forget that that some of the most powerful media are, in fact, private, privately owned corporations. Uh, I remember, um, just a quick anecdote, when I, my uh, younger stepdaughter was, I think, about 12, uh, she was on Facebook, and there was a story at the time that some students had been bullying uh, a student, and then they had been uh, posting nasty comments about one of their teachers, and there was an investigation. And she was outraged by this because she said, you know, when you post something on Facebook, it's private. Mm. And I, I, oh. I, I had to say, no, it's not. I mean, that's exactly what it isn't. Uh, not only is it not private in the sense that she meant, like it's just for me and the people I send it to, but it's, it's actually owned by the corporation. So you, you are the product that the corporation is selling to other people who are also selling themselves to you. That's what that kind of social medium does. So it's social in a very narrow and, and perverse sense, in my opinion. Uh, and that's something that we have to be careful of because that's not actually freedom of expression. That's not decentralization. That's not democracy. Yeah, um, I mean, I have to say, when, when I think about uh, younger people and talking to them about technology, it, in my experience, it us usually works the other way around that, that uh, that they, you know, they they're pretty sophisticated with, you know, with all these things, and um, and I'm not. Um, I mean, I don't use them very much, but to the extent I think about them, I I, I just uh, have have much less of a sense of what's what's at stake and how to avoid some of the pitfalls. So I'm, uh, I actually have high hopes for 
for the younger generation that they they grow up in uh, in a landscape that doesn't have an authoritative uh, voice, um, but they they've been forced to kind of figure out how to you know how to survive in this uh, in this much more complicated and chaotic uh, landscape, uh, which is not to say that that they shouldn't have help, which which I think is where um, perhaps this new literacy um, idea com comes in because uh, it sounds like the sort of issues that you think about and, and that McLuhan thought about are, are much broader than, than just how to, you know, how to behave on social media. Yeah, certainly. And I, I, I think the, the part of what you just said that I agree with, because I do disagree with some of it, the part that I agree with that's is, a, that's a lot. Yeah, uh, <laughs> is that it's, it's a two-way kind of thing. And I think that's always been true about literacy and about education more generally. Right? So once you expand the notion of literacy past reading and writing, which are skills that can be taught from the top down. Now you're thinking about education in a, in a uh, or literacy in the broader sense of education more uh, as such. And I think here, I think this is not something that the Globe and Mail would necessarily, readers would necessarily want to hear about, but I think about Jacques Rossier in The Ignorant Schoolmaster, his, his wonderful book where he talks about how uh, the top-down model of education is inherently limited because it's, it's limited to the, the bounds of, of what the, the schoolmaster knows. And it's also authoritative and maybe authoritarian to you know, see this as a kind of um, injection of knowledge into the pupil. Whereas when, when you think about the etymological roots of the word education, it's to draw out, right? Educare. And so Rossier says, the best schoolmaster is the one who knows that he doesn't know. I mean, this is a Socratic insight. Uh, the ignorant schoolmaster is the one who creates a space where we all can learn. And that's part of what I would call the new literacy, too. Uh, I think people are, but here's the part I disagree with. Uh, I think people are. This is what uh, we cut out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Matthias is making this, um, cutting the throat motion right now. Uh, I think uh, older people tend to denigrate themselves with respect to this because they say, oh, these kids, they're so smart. You know, they know everything. We know nothing. I'm a dummy. Uh, that's just not true. And yes, we have things to learn from. We have things to learn from everybody. And I, I actually, I'm very mistrustful of generational language uh, as such. I think it's a, it's a kind of snake oil of thought. I think it, it, it traps us into ways of thinking about communities in terms of young and old, smart and dumb, uh, you know, savvy and not savvy, and so on. Uh, I don't think that's very helpful. And um, so while I might myself be, um, you know, I describe myself as a neo-Luddite, uh, I've sent exactly one tweet in my life, and it was to sell some mm -hmm. armchairs that I wanted to get rid of. That's it. How did that work out? Uh, it worked out great. Yeah. So, you know. It was 2005? <laughs> no, no, just last year. So, go Twitter, two thumbs up for selling armchairs. Uh, I'm not on Facebook, and I have no interest in any of that stuff, partly because I see, for me, what would be the deleterious effects. Uh, you know, I see it in my friends who are uh, in politics or journalism and how it dominates their thinking. But even other people. Poets, for example, spend way too much time on Twitter mm. when they maybe should be writing poetry instead. And so the whole like Canadian, imagine this: the Canadian poetry Twitter community. I'm 
it, I'm trying to imagine. Yeah, exactly. Right but uh, <laughs> and somebody says something, and as a, a poet friend of mine said, totally straight faced, Twitter went nuts. It's like, well, you know, I don't think it's Twitter went nuts or the Twitterverse. You know, it's the other Canadian poets who are on Twitter who had this reaction. I mean, I just think that is something that that you could easily not spend your time thinking about and you know go for a walk write a poem uh, so I think those those ideas that somehow we all have to be as savvy as this or as you know um, cutting edge as that I think that's actually uh, a, a, a form of ideology and if we add the generational ideology on top of that it becomes even more harmful so um, I'm I'm gonna part ways on that one yeah, so, so when, when you talk about the new literacy, I thought um, one, of the, one of the ways in which um, this, this new research project that, that you're part of at the University of Colorado. As you are. Oh, oh thank you. Thank you very much. I was wondering, does, um, you make reference uh, perhaps to, what was it, uh, a skeptical law professor? A skeptical oh. law professor. Oh, yeah. Is that okay with you? I don't you? know. I, I don't know. I can change Could it. Could have been. No, no. That's funny. Maybe <laughs> that was me. Um, but the, it, so the, it's called STEM plus C, and uh, yeah, it's run by a computer science professor, Tom Ye, at the uh, University of Colorado, with a lot of other really interesting people who are uh, know a lot about education, about community outreach, and about literacy. And, about literacy. Um, and yeah, so I, I think one of the really interesting things about this project is that it, it takes a very broad approach to the question of you know what it means to. Um, educate people about how to survive in you know, modern technologically infused society, um, both kind of in, in the range of, of issues, uh, but also in, in age range, right? It's, I mean, uh, it's great this, that they start in, in middle school. Yeah. So the, uh, and I, I think you were the reason that I was asked to be part of this advisory board. So uh, at the beginning... That's the best thing I ever did. <laughs> Uh, at the beginning, I was a little, speaking of skeptical, I was a little skeptical because uh, having written and spoken about AI uh, and, and technology more generally for, for some time now, uh, every now and then I get these requests to be the ethics person or the politics person on some kind of research project. Yeah. Uh, and, and oftentimes, you know, and I, I usually meet with people and, and listen to them and a lot of times I have to say in the past it's been they need an ethicist to round out their grant application or uh, somebody has told them that they need to have some kind of ethics review as part of their their you know tech program and this seems to me exactly the, the wrong approach and it it puts uh, the ethical concerns concerning technology artificial intelligence media everything into a kind of uh, backseat position or window dressing, I mean, pick your metaphor. And uh, it feels like an add-on. And what, what's great about this STEM plus C project is that it starts explicitly from the idea of integrating ethical concerns into uh, curricula concerning artificial intelligence, robotics, machine learning, uh, and so on. And and then, as you say, the, the other thing that um, turned out to be very attractive and, and convincing to me was that it's aimed at uh, younger students and uses uh, narrative elements, storytelling, to uh, add these concerns into their thinking about uh, 
technology, because we know they're thinking about technology, right? I mean, I just saw a, a, a story today that, that shows that over half of American 11-year-olds have smartphones. So, um, I mean, they're not, you, you can't even say they're thinking about technology, right? They are technology. They, they, it's the water in which they swim, uh, the air that they breathe. So to make ethics part of that environment is something that I think is really important and is not always uh, integrated. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's yeah, and, and so one one element is the uh, is is the early age, or the early involvement. You're getting them early and getting them to think about this stuff early on. And I I, I do want to talk about that um, some more because I think it's a nice way to also connect this to what the universities and you know, we at the University of Toronto are doing or maybe should be doing, but they're doing it much earlier. But I think they're also doing it um, really in a really sophisticated, flexible, innovative, inventive uh, way. So, um, and because they related it to projects that they're already involved in. So they, they mentioned the Build a Better books project, which which creates uh, books um, that have become legible to the visually impaired. Um, so they they don't see this as some kind of tech-specific thing that they're doing. They see this as kind of a, a much more general way of trying to figure out how to use technology for for better rather than rather than for worse. Yeah. And, and they do it in a very sophisticated way by working with experts in these fields and existing projects in the community. And I think that's it's a model approach to, to this issue, I think. Yeah. I, you know, uh, you and I were both just in Boulder to uh, act as part of the advisory board on, on these projects. And it was exciting to sit around the table with computer scientists who are very reflective about how this stuff should work and not at all closed-minded. And then experts from other fields in information science and education and literacy studies. Uh, and yeah, all the different modalities. So the Build a Better Book idea, just to take that one for, for the moment, is fascinating because we do tend to think about books as, uh, we, we ignore McLuhan on books. We think that books are just conveyors of, of information or maybe knowledge, maybe wisdom, but that they're just, you know, the codex is just a kind of carrying case for text. But the book is also a physical object. and that's part of its message of medium too, that you have to put it on a shelf, you can hold it. And then when you think about the fact that people who are uh, visually constrained might not be able to deal with text in the way that sighted people can, fully sighted people can, uh, that changes, if you're paying attention, the very idea or possibility of a book. And so, I mean, Braille is one obvious thing, but, but they're expanding the notion here, you know, using 3D printers yeah. to create these objects, which are uh, astonishing. And, uh, you know, people always say, well, the book is dead, and we, we know that's not true. More books are being published now than, than ever. Uh, but I, I think this is even more interesting than the fact that the book is not dead, is that the book is, is expanding its, its horizon of possibility. Uh, so that's one great thing. And then, uh, you know, the, the robotics camps where they are introducing these curricula using storytelling to um, highlight ethical issues with respect to um, artificial intelligence and robotics. That's another really uh, forward-looking, I think, initiative. 
uh, as I say in the article, you know, the, the interesting one of the interesting things about this is that, in some ways, it's not new. We've always used fables and uh, morality tales, fairy tales, uh, speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, uh, as fictional or narrative narrative-based elements that try to uh, use the power of narrative to get people to think about, you know their responsibilities, their relationships, their communities. And it does potentially start at a very early age. So they're targeting these um, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade students. And that's, a, that's fertile ground because you, know, you can do some things with, with young children, uh, and you can do some things with, say, higher secondary and university yeah. uh, students. But these, uh, what would they be, 11 to 14 year olds? Um, that's like a sweet spot for Encouraging a certain kind. I mean, Plato would say this, right? That's that's where ethical <laughs> I education, that, yeah, yeah. The sweet spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's where ethical education really can take hold if it's mm. done right. Yeah. You know, we don't have to follow Plato and murder everybody, you know, over that age yeah. and start again. But um, I think he actually said even younger than fourteen. But uh, it's it's debatable. Uh, but we're not going to murder anybody. Okay. We're just going to teach them. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, yeah, I do. I, I, I remember uh, Grimm's fairy tales. I remember reading those uh, and just, you know, tens and dozens and whatever of them. And, and, and I, I feel still that they affect the way, maybe I'm revealing something about myself, but the way I, I behave uh, today. So the kind of the idea that, that you walk through a forest and then you, s you come across an ant and you, know, you don't step on the ant because you know the ant at some point may may kind of uh, come to help you and, and that's not a very sophisticated moral attitude but but just that you're kind of communicating with with all these different beings and that um, there is a kind of a moral community that you're a part of uh, yeah I, I, I thought that was powerful but on the other hand I think later on um, I, I always became very suspicious if people started to feed me you know stories because I've always felt like you know th that was like their very clever way to make me you know <laughs> somehow care about stuff that otherwise I wouldn't care about <laughs> so I, I, I guess I have ethical concerns about using using narratives to kind of uh, um, get people yeah to kind of engage with these ideas without them knowing you know oh I thought I was just talking about this awesome story but in fact it's about you know empathy or, or yeah. whatever well, there, there are a couple points that occur to me about that. The, the first is, uh, yeah, fairy tales. Um, I was also, and I mentioned this in the article, I was thinking about Aesop's yeah. fables. And uh, so, you know, there's the grasshopper and the ant, which is uh, one of those ones that stays with you, speaking of ants, uh, about different ways to live your life. Uh, and maybe the most famous one is the fox and the grapes, uh, which gives us the expression sour grapes. And oh. so there's you know, a, a direct line from Aesop's fable of the fox and the grapes, and you know, the fox walks away be saying, well, the grapes must be sour because he can't get to them, right? Uh, even though he wanted them. And there's a direct line from that to Nietzsche, right? I mean, in, well, a oh, okay. there's a, right. it's a long line, but I mean, <laughs> no, it's true. When Nietzsche talks about the power of ressentiment in human affairs, he's really referencing this this very, very basic fabulistic notion of uh, we denigrate the thing that we want but can't get. And that's what resentment is. And it's distinct from other kinds of moral attitudes. 
You know, it's distinct from disapproval, sheer disapproval. Or it's even distinct from envy or jealousy. It's a very particular kind of, as he says, soul-destroying moral attitude. Because you're actually, you know, hollowing out your own desire when you can't satisfy it. You say, well, yeah, they're sour anyway, you know. You don't know they're sour because you couldn't get them. And so that's, that's the whole point. And it's a self-defensive but actually self-destructive move. And so that's, uh, I mean, that's the power of something as, as simple as that story of the fox and the grapes. But I, here's where I do, I think, you, you make a really good point about um, when narrative can be misused or uh, can be sly instead of reflective. And, uh, you know, for example, I've taught here at University of Toronto uh, a different versions of a class on ethics and fiction. And the, the idea of the class is pretty straightforward. Uh, all the assigned texts are stories, um, novels, short stories, plays sometimes, uh, films sometimes. And uh, we read them or view them and discuss them to think about ethical implications that they might raise. So that's explicit and reflective. But I, even then, I have had some doubts about doing that. Because it seems, on the one hand, to make ethics into a kind of um, adjunct to fiction. But flipping it over, it seems somehow to diminish fiction as an yeah. independent way of, of engaging the world. Because especially if a, a story is any good or a novel is any good, it's not meant to be didactic. I mean, we all know didactic fiction is usually terrible. Uh, so there's a fine line there. And I wrote, a, I wrote an article some time ago called The Ethics of Ex Ethics in Fiction. So is it ethical to use fiction to teach ethics? And is there a specific ethical attitude with respect to fiction that's distinct from the ethical attitude of self to the world? Uh, so that's a kind of meta question that I, I think you're right, is, is, should be something that's on our minds. Uh, I think in grade six, probably that's not, you're not ready for that yet, but <laughs> you, at the university level you are. And I think if you do that right, if you teach that kind of thing right, you get, you get both the you know, um, first order and the second order thinking going on, and actually the relationship between the two orders. Uh, so really, you know, sophisticated students can, can grasp that, and uh, that complicates their ethical attitudes in, in really interesting ways. But that's, that's for, you know, 1920. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, when we talk about the new literacy, I think one of the things I like about this, uh, this idea is that it's really, um, you know, but it, it's an attitude and it's a skill, but it's, a, it's an all-encompassing and very flexible um, attitude that's that's available to to everyone. It, you know, it's not um, it's not a technical skill. It's uh, and so I think uh, this this is why I thought when you talked about um, you know abusing uh, fiction to kind of make an ethical point. I think I think that's true. I think um, the idea is that people kind of are reflective about whatever they do, whether it's reading or doing or you know making AI or whatever. Uh, not so much that they're thinking I'm I'm doing ethics now. It's just kind of a, as I do things. I kind of one of the things I I'm sensitive to are the normative dimensions of whatever I'm reading about or whatever I'm doing, and and I think that 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 way of approaching the question of how to think about ethics of AI 
is, is kind of what this um, University of Colorado project is, is, is about. And, and that's why they start at a time when you could expect people to develop these basic attitudes as opposed to later. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, the uh, ethics isn't something that's just taught in a course, and it's not something that's, again, an add-on to some research mm -hmm. proposal. Uh, or, you know, there may be codes of ethics and there's law, but these are, these are carapaces or, uh, at best, uh, marginal uh, expressions of what should be more like a habitus, you know. I mean, it should be part of your total being in the world. Uh, and so if, if narrative is part of that same habitus, which it is for everyone, I mean, stories are everywhere, uh, we, you know, some people believe story is the essence of self because of, you know, birth and death giving us the beginning and the end, and we have to figure out the middle. I mean, that's a narrative right by itself. Uh, but if, if that's true, then the, the ethical dimension, you shouldn't even use dimension. It's, it's the suffusion. And I think, that's, um, I think that's a really profound point. Um, the other thing that, that I was thinking uh, as you were making that point is the, uh, that the question of openness. So uh, in this, this little piece, uh, and I, maybe I should expand on it, because now you're making me think of all kinds of other things I didn't say. Uh, this idea of openness with, with the new literacy, as I, I'm calling it, uh, is it is an attitude, or a, a maybe, again, a being in the world. It's not a specific set of skills. And uh, unfortunately, it seems to me that when we now talk about openness with respect to technology, it's often things like openness to upgrade, or the new model, or the new gadget. And this, this kind of uh, attention-grabbing uh, innovation or novelty, novelty is probably better, uh, takes away from what should be a, a more uh, searching kind of openness, which is openness to the world and to your own experience. You don't need to have the latest uh, phone or the whatever we're now at G8 or G12 or you know I mean what I don't know G7 uh, yeah <laughs> yeah not the G20 yeah um, uh, I guess the G comes after the number when we're talking about <laughs> tech right I'm I'm so like but you know it's okay uh, but you don't need that to to be a, a person who is here and and living a life and. Uh, and if I if I can just give a quick plug for my latest book, which is called "Wish I Were Here," uh, and is about boredom and what I call the interface. Meaning by that, you know, every kind of technological mediation between self and world. Uh, we do wish we were here. You know, part of part of what I see in all of this kind of happy imagery of here's here's the new phone. Here's you know you can get the new plan for this. We'll give you. Six months free, you know. Uh, TVs are getting sharper and sharper in images, and so on and so on. Is what's missing from that? It seems to me is people actually living inside their own skins, you know, actually uh, experiencing themselves as here. And and this again goes goes right back to McLuhan, right? Because if a medium is an extension of human consciousness, uh, it's also a projection of human consciousness. So if you start, uh, you know, sending out yourself into the world all the time, and you can't sort of be yourself without that, at the center there might, at some point, just become a sort of vacuum. 
uh, and you, you have hollowed out your own selfhood. And now this may just be the way we're evolving. You know, when you, I think about a century ago, uh, 1919, uh, T.S. Eliot published uh, his famous essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent. And uh, Eliot was the first poet, you know, we now call him a modernist, but so he didn't call himself that, but the first poet to, to understand that the modern self is a kind of collection of, of shards, you know, that we, we shore up against the world. And it's, it's integrated only by an act of will. And if we're now in a kind of postmodern condition of some description, uh, maybe there is, there's no even, you know, collection of shards. There's, there's just extension in every direction. Uh, walking over here today, I saw, I saw at least five people uh, walking down the street talking. And, you know, in the, in, it, this is a point that's been made many times. In, in the not-so-distant uh, past, we would have thought those people were crazy, just walking down the street talking to themselves. Or to themselves, okay. Yeah. Well, I just, yeah, no, no individual people, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but, um, so that, this one, th this was a perfect example. This one guy was walking down the street all by himself, and he's like, you know, this is the difference between good and evil. If you express yourself as evil, then you are evil. And I thought, who are you talking to? That's kind of interesting, but it's, it's weird to see somebody saying something apparently non-trivial, but to the air, except it's not, because he's got a microphone that I can't see, and he's on his phone somehow, you know, with his earpiece or whatever. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's uh, that's where we're going. There's um, this again is another anecdote, but it's related to the work that that you've been doing here at the center. We uh, last year did this series of films about ethics and AI, and one of the films that that generated a lot of response was um, Spike Jones's film Her, with Joaquin Phoenix, where he he falls in love with this. They call it an, an OS an operating system, but it's an AI. It's a disembodied AI voiced by Scarlett Johansson. And there's an incredible scene where he's walking down uh, a crowded street in, they never say what, what city it is, sort of a nameless uh, a North American city. And everybody's talking only to themselves or to the, the air, you know. And nobody's talking to each other, nobody's looking at each other. <laughs> and and uh, you know we're we're not that far away from that. Uh, so I and uh, final little piece. Uh, I just saw an ad for. I think it's a. I can't remember what brand it is, which is probably good. Uh, a set of <laughs> headphones um, that are noise um, suppressing headphones, but they're hooked up to Alexa, so you can walk through an environment, and you can speak. And the headphones or some kind of microphone picks up your request or your, and then the headphones feed things. So I, I could look at a market and say, hey Alexa, uh, what's that I'm looking at? You know, and they say, oh, it's uh, you know, a spice mix from Doha. Uh, you know, and then, you know, you could take the headphones off and you could actually go over there and engage with another human being. But why do that when you can have the headphones on? Well, I think the answer is to uh, listen to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to thank uh, Bart Kingwell for for joining us, and uh, I hope it's the you know the first of many uh, conversations. So, thanks very much, Mark. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Let's Get Ethical. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and to visit the Center for Ethics website at ethics.utoronto.ca.